Lord, as we come to your word now and consider the way in which you rescue your people after the exile, we ask that you would um, deepen our understanding in you and the promises of your salvation to us in Christ. We thank you that we uh, belong to the promises that are testified here, and we ask that you would make that clearer to us, that we might hold fast to you, our God who never lies. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Remain standing if you're able and turn your attention with me to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37, I'll read verses 15 through 28. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, Will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join with it the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, that they may be one in my hand." When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived, They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in the land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Amen. Please be seated. Well, you may remember at the beginning, uh, more towards the beginning of the book, um, Ezekiel was given various signs to perform, physical acts um, which God had given to him, which then would, he would use to make some truth known. And Ezekiel is commanded to do something similar 
uh, to that here. I wonder if you were able to picture it in your mind. Um, and not, if not, I'll, I'll help you here. Right? So once, to imagine, he, he takes a stick. Some commentators think maybe it was a, a tablet of some kind, but some sort of piece of wood. And he takes it and he writes on it, Judah. Right? So you've got one stick with Judah on it. And then he take another stick and he writes on it, Joseph. And then he used to hold them both in his hands so it, it looks like one stick, right? Like they're tied together. It reminds me kind of that, sort of the opposite of that thumb trick, you know, where you, it looks like it goes together. Um, anyway, two sticks as one, as one um, looking as one stick. And so when the people of Israel say, what's this about? You, you got a couple sticks in your hand, Judah and Joseph, he is to tell them. And this is no silly trick. Um, it is a sign, a sign that God and, and a promise that God is going to take these two peoples in a way and bring them into one. You remember that maybe for, for about 300 years, God's people had been divided. God's people had been divided. Uh, they came into the land of Israel. They were, the various tribes were um, assigned to various regions. There was a united kingdom under David for a little, but um, then Ishbosheth sort of separated, and then David regained control. And then it was united under Solomon, and then it was lost. After Solomon, this great kingdom of God, this one nation, these 12 sons of Jacob. The 12 tribes of Israel were divided into these two kingdoms with competing kings and competing uh, systems of worship and, and competing priesthoods, brother against brother. It was an awful thing. And they often fought against each other. This was not how the people of God were to be established well, the prophets, when they come and they speak to Israel, we find there's the, there are these hopes of reunion that would come in the future. Hopes of a united kingdom, not united in some sort of halfway compromise where we say, well, okay, half of us will worship Baal and the other half of us will worship Yahweh and then maybe together we'll kind of work it out. No, two people, two separate people joining together into the one family that they were supposed to be under God. Consider these verses, uh, Isaiah eleven thirteen, The jealousy of Ephraim shall, shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Jeremiah three eighteen. In those days the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. Hosea 1.11, and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And so there are these hopes that the two will come together again. And one of the things that's interesting in this passage, um, it's not just interesting, but I think it helps, to, helps us to feel the weight of what's going on here are the, the, ways in which, um, the ways in which God speaks and names these people. And it's a little bit confusing if you don't know the history because isn't Israel all of Israel and that sort of thing. And so we have to think just a little bit about how he's using names here. 
So the first thing to know is that Israel is uh, another name for Jacob, right? Israel is another name for Jacob, and so the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 sons of Jacob represent the same thing. The second thing to know is that Israel, as a people, as this family with this singular father uh, who was the son of Abraham, this was a, a land as well, right? The, the land or the people of Israel. But when the kingdom was divided in sin and rebellion, then the southern kingdom was frequently called Judah and the northern kingdom was frequently called Israel. Right? So as these two are coming back together, um, the, uh, God is careful to make clear what is happening. So for example, he says in 16, right on one stick, for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Right? So he doesn't mean the northern kingdom that is associated with him. He means the people of the whole family that are associated with that, uh, that kingdom, the southern kingdom, Judah. Does that make sense? Okay. So the, 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 right, the people of Israel associated with Judah, and then on the other stick, right, Joseph, and then he adds this other name, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. So if you imagine the house of Israel as a whole, right, I'm kind of doing this to sort of show the geography, north to south. If you imagine the kingdom as a whole, Israel, and some of that kingdom is associated with Judah on the bottom, and some of that kingdom is associated with Joseph on the top, or also named Ephraim here, that's, you have these two groups, north and south, all of Israel, that are being brought together. These people belonging to Israel, these people belonging to Israel, and, and being brought together. And why does he say Ephraim, right? Why throw that in? Well, Ephraim was one of the sons of, uh, of Joseph, um, Ephraim and Manasseh. And there's this interesting way in which they received this double blessing. And I won't get into all of it now, but in an interesting way, um, when the 12 tribes are often named in the Old Testament, you don't see Joseph's name, but you see Ephraim and Manasseh. It's partly because of this double blessing that was promised to them. And sometimes, uh, especially Ephraim, sort of stands in for Joseph as, as a tribe. So that's probably why Ephraim is being listed here. That's somewhat common. What's a little bit more uncommon is the name of Joseph. Why is Joseph being listed here? I think one reason for that, aside from just making sure we're um, Ezekiel and everyone is clear who he's talking about, is he's calling to mind the story of Joseph and Judah back in Genesis. He wants to call to our mind a time when the brothers of Israel were separated. Do you remember what I'm talking about? This, and perhaps you don't know this story. The, there was a time when the 12 tribes, these 12 brothers, were having some problems um, Boys, young men, something like that was going on. And Joseph, the brothers were mad at Joseph. And they stuck him in a hole and they intended even to kill him. And one of the brothers, Judah, interestingly enough, Judah came and he said, let's not do this. And he comes up with this kind of alternate plan to sell him to some traders that were passing by, get rid of their brother that way. But he says, let's let not blood be on our hands this way. So, as uh, there's a number of things that happen, jo Joseph is uh, sold into slavery. Joseph, uh, all kinds of 
crazy things happen to him, and then eventually, amazingly, he becomes second in command of Egypt. God brings then a famine on the land, a famine that is affecting his family back at home, a family that he's been separated from for some time. And through God's providence and all these amazing events, if you haven't read it in a while, you should go back and read this story. It's really amazing. Um, Judah and his brothers leave his father and they go, leaving uh, Benjamin at home, one of the other brothers, leaves, leaves and goes to Egypt um, to find food and this sort of thing. They end up meeting with Joseph and, and Joseph tells them to go back and get Benjamin. And go back and, and uh, they speak to their father and dad's like, no way. <laughs> I've already lost my son Joseph. He doesn't know what's happened. I'm not going to lose Benjamin too. Do you know who pledges his life and speaks on the brothers on behalf and, and, and sort of brings a, a, a resolution about? It's Judah. Judah speaks up and he says, no. He says, I will be a pledge to you, my father. We have to go. This man, who he doesn't realize is his brother, Joseph, he says, this, this man, he has commanded us to do this thing. We have to do this thing. We're, we're dying here. And so he pledges his own life if anything would happen to his, his brother Benjamin. So they go, and then there's a bunch more drama, and eventually um, it is revealed who, who, um, who Joseph is. And Judah, as sort of the representative of his brothers, is reunited with Joseph and Benjamin as well. And the brothers are all back together, and, um, and the Lord, um, and we see the Lord's goodness in all of this. The family, ultimately, is preserved through these events. They get the food they need, they move into the land of Egypt, they become a very prosperous at least for a time, and then there's more story after that. The point here is that I think what's happening in Ezekiel here is God is calling our minds back to this time, back to a time when Jodah and Joseph were separate, and they're being brought back together now by the Lord, by the work of the Lord. And he says, after all, I will do this. God's not just yelling at his people, telling them to Stop fighting. He says, I am going to make you stop fighting. Later he talks about, I will establish a covenant of peace with themselves and with him. So that's the first part of what he describes here, this joining of the people of Israel. But then he adds several other things. And what he happens here is God uses all of these Old Testament images to create a picture for us of what Jesus will fulfill in the new covenant. What are some of the things he mentions? Well, he says, first of all, that he will bring his people together. He will gather them from all around the world and bring them into their own land. On the now mountains of Israel, he will establish them. He also talks about them being um, established under one king. Right? This was always part of the problem. A king whose uh, power was contested. A king who uh, couldn't maintain control. A king who wasn't righteous. Who wouldn't lead his people under the Lord. And then eventually competing kings. Well eventually God promises here one king. 
one king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. I'm skipping down a little bit. He describes in verses 24 through 28 who that king is going to be. He says, it will be David, which is really remarkable because David's been dead a long time. So that should put a question in our minds. What does he mean by David? But he says, David shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd. More than that, not only will he be king, but it's going to work. This kingdom is going to be a great kingdom. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They will dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. Their children, their children's children, and it will be forever. He will set them in the land, he says. They will multiply them. There will be obedience. They will have peace with one another, and they will have peace with God. He says, I will establish my sanctuary in their midst. I will dwell with them. They will be my people, and I will be their God forever. I will dwell with them forever. Finally, the last thing I'll mention is in verse 23. A corresponding truth to the things that we've considered already, he says, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned. I will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. So God not only promises to bring all of these things about, but he's going to fix the problem that caused the breaking and the sin and the disruptions and the lack of peace from the beginning. He's going to cleanse them from their sin and he's going to save them from all their backslidings. So this is what he promises. This is another one of those passages in Ezekiel where he says, I will, I will, I will, I will. Promises of good news, promises of the gospel. So the question for us now is, were these fulfilled? And if so, how? And what difference does that make for us? Did God fulfill his promise? And is there any way that we can be a part of that? Because if this kingdom exists, I want to be a part of it. (laughs) If a kingdom of God that is established where his citizens obey his rules and seek after him, if a kingdom of God is established where there is a righteous king ruling in holiness, where brothers are united together and it's an everlasting place of safety and security and dwelling with God, does that sound like a place you might want to be a part of? It's very different from a lot of the places and, and, and governments that we experience in this world. If that's something God is offering, we should be all ears about how it is we can receive that. Well, of course, there's a lot more to the Bible, right, than right here um, in Ezekiel 37. And God tells us in the scriptures exactly how it is we have that kingdom and what has happened. It didn't happen right away. And as we see, there are some mysterious things about here. The everlasting nature of the kingdom, the king being his servant David, Ultimately, what we discover, and I'm getting to the punchline here, this kingdom is given to us and fulfilled in David's son, Jesus Christ. Not just David's son, but the very son of God. So that when God says, I will fulfill these things, he does. He does, and not just uh, through various means, although that's part of it, but even directly, 
even directly, the sending of the Son, the sending of the Spirit, all these things are fulfilled in Christ. How do we know that? This is going to be the remainder of my sermon, and it's going to be a little bit thick. So I know you're sleepy and it's late, um, but try to bear with me, right? This is an important question. How do we know that these things are fulfilled in Jesus? What gives us certainty about that? One reason is that the New Testament in various places says that the Old Testament is fulfilled for us in Christ. He fulfills all the law and the prophets, the scriptures tell us, as, as one example. Another reason is that the scriptures tell us that the Old Covenant could have never remained. In other words, if all God is... So let me start again. It is impossible for God to just kind of continue on this covenant and not establish a new one because embedded in the old covenant itself was obsolescence, right? We talk about planned obsolescence, right, with uh, digital devices and, you know, TVs and phones and things like that. That was true of the old covenant as well. It was never intended to be the covenant which would last forever. It wasn't its purpose. Hebrews 8, 7 puts it this way, For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. In other words, even if you never heard about the new covenant, you would expect it. Just from the faults of the old covenant. Faults, not in any way that uh, impugns God of some sort of um, malfeasance or um, making mistakes or not doing a good job, but faults, um, faults in the sense that it was never intended to do what the new covenant would do. It had a different purpose, which the author of Hebrews spends a lot of time talking about, as does Paul and many other New Testament writers. We also have promises in the old, in the old covenant and uh, in the prophets that a new covenant would come. We've seen some of them in Ezekiel. We see it even here. God says, I will establish a covenant of peace. He points forward to something new. Jeremiah 31, 31 is another example. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Another reason that we are right to believe that the old covenant um, could not remain and wouldn't establish these things on itself is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 8, 5. The things of the Old Covenant, particularly there, the priesthood and the tabernacle, were always, here's what he says, a copy and shadow of heavenly things. He says that also of the law as a whole when he says in Hebrews 10.1, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. The Old Covenant, Hebrews says, was shadows and types, copies of something. You can almost imagine, this is just me, sometimes I imagine like Lego models, right? This is a Lego model of the Eiffel Tower, a Lego model of the Taj Mahal or whatever, right? It's a copy and a shadow of something else, right? 
That's what the old covenant was like, the author of Hebrews says. They were copies and shadows of what? Of heavenly things. Keep that in your mind. Underline that. Heavenly things of the true form of realities. Hebrews says they were established and based on heavenly patterns, the tabernacle in particular and the priesthood. They're based on heavenly patterns that Moses saw on the mountain. So it's not just a kind of philosophical thing. Moses was given, you know, blueprints (laughs) based on heavenly, heavenly things. Now here's the kicker. Christ enters into those heavenly places as a priest and as a king. He enters into the true realities that the copies pointed forward to in fact he even said the earthly one is going to be destroyed and in three days arise you know cause a temple you know build a temple and how can you build it in three days well we are told he was speaking about his body he was speaking about um, what he would do through his death and resurrection thinking about him as a priest hebrews 9 24 says for he has entered not into holy places made with hands. Think of the temple and all its you know, accoutrements. Think of the, the curtain right, and the pre, high priest going back behind that curtain. That's, he didn't do that. What did he do? Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, he says, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So, going back to Ezekiel, and I hope you're tracking with me here, we, based on these things that we know then, or that they knew then, and that were revealed later in Christ, we can have a lot of confidence that these things would not be fulfilled in their final form exactly and literally in the way that he says here. David, for example, maybe coming back to life and ruling as a king. He means something else. He must mean something else. Because this forever consummated form of the kingdom wouldn't happen according to the old types and shadows, right? They were pointing forward to true realities. They were pointing forward to great, greater things. And what we see then in the New Testament is that the work that Christ did brought about those effects that are promised. Listen more from Hebrews chapter 9. Picture in your mind what Jesus did. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Does that sound familiar? Eternal redemption? That's what he's talking about here, right? A a, a life forevermore, a forgiveness in which we will live with and in God forever. He continues, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's language just like Ezekiel uses here, right? The purification, saving us from our backslidings, cleansing us, right? That language of purification so that 
They will be my people and I will be their God. So that they will walk in my statutes. They will have a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. That's what Hebrews says here. Jesus offered himself to do this thing, to accomplish this thing. It's because of passages like this that we know Jesus fulfilled this. It's not just a guess. It's what happened in history. It happened. And he's not only a better priest after a new order, he's also that son of David who would rule forever. If you were here with us this morning, you heard about the angel Gabriel, right? Coming to Mary and speaking to her and talking to her and saying that a a, a son of David, a son of his house, this one would rule on the throne of David forever. If you would, turn with me to Psalm 110. This is an important passage for considering these things, and it is applied to Jesus in a number of ways throughout the New Testament. Psalm 110. Let's turn there together. Don't worry. I'm I'm getting close to the end. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning and the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment on the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over over the wide earth. He will drink the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So here in Psalm 110, we have one who is prophesied about who is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Which, if you want to go and read Hebrews, he explains all what this means and how he's a priest but of a different order. Right? Which is what we're saying about everything. A, a, a tabernacle of a different order. A, a, a priesthood of a different order. And a king of a different order. Not only is he a priest, as we are told in Psalm 110, but he is a king as well. He will make the enemies... Uh, he, he will uh, make God's enemies... His footstool. So, is Jesus the one who fulfills this? Is he not only that priest who goes into the heavenly places and offers himself as a sacrifice, is he also the king? The answer is yes. He is David. He is the one who was to come and would establish the Davidic throne forever. Stephen, in his um, sermon, right before his persecution, his Uh, the nail on the head when he says, for David did not ascend into the heavens. (laughs) David did not ascend into the heavens. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Right? Did David go to heaven? Did David sit down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where he would judge the living and the dead? Would David establish all the enemies of God as his footstool? No. Who did? The prophesied son of David. That David would go and that David 
was Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3 of Jesus, it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You hear this language of priest and king coming together in these verses. Hebrews 8.1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. Always helpful, right, when a preacher says that. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That's the point. Which is to say... That's how we know Jesus is this David. That Jesus is the one who unites Judah and Israel, and even more than that, breaks down the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles and brings all the families of the earth together to worship the Lord through the son of Abraham, the son of Jacob, the true Israel, the son of David, the Son of God. Which means those who are looking for the establishment of Israel in an earthly form need to look up. It's up. It's not going to happen here in this time and in this place because it was a copy and a shadow of the heavenly realities to come. We're not looking for another kingdom here in this world. We are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth in which God will rule over forever. That's what the land was pointing to. The temple was pointing to the temple of the Lord in the heavenly places. The priesthood was pointing to the priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek. A new covenant was being anticipated. This can't be taken literally, in a wooden sense. Instead, we read it as it was intended. We read it as God has given to us. We read it as it is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled these things not by reenacting the old, but by fulfilling what the old always pointed forward to. And in that sense, it's very literal. These things were literally types and shadows of the things to come. And Jesus has literally fulfilled them and entered into the realities to which they pointed. And we know it's Jesus and not anyone else because he's the one that fulfilled all the prophecies. He's the one that angel Gabriel spoke of. He's the one that was born of a virgin. He's the one that lived the life that he did. He's the one that died on the cross. He's the one that rose from the dead, and, as we read in Acts, ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's the one that poured out his spirit on all of Israel, not just on the 12 tribes, but all, all the nations of the earth, and then brought even the Gentiles in, so that when heaven comes... And the consummation of it is all revealed at the appearing of our Lord in glory. We will hear every tribe and tongue and nation declaring the glory of God. These, this is the kingdom that he was, will bring and, and reveal. It's the kingdom that he has already established. And he is even now drawing people into that kingdom. 
Our responsibility then is to hear the call, to wake up and see the reality of what God is doing, which has been begun and will be completed on his return. And instead of hearing that and hearing of that kingdom and then just walking away from it as though we haven't heard anything important, we should seek after it. First, above all things, whatever it takes, we should make sure that we belong there. And praise God, it really doesn't take much. We simply trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust the one that God has given to us, and we rest in him alone. It may mean giving up the things of this world, but really, what's to give up when this is what we're talking about? Let's pray. Our Lord and King, we pray to you, O God Most High, through your Son and by your Spirit, that we might enter into your presence through the one who lived and died for us, who now rules for us and and shatters all of our enemies, who dresses us in robes of righteousness and who proclaims us as just through his work and his righteousness given to us. Lord, this kingdom that you have promised so long ago, we now see with clear eyes um, that it has been established and that we can participate in it, enjoy in it, and that it is, as Jesus says, a kingdom that is not of this world. Lord, uh, it is hard to remember this sometimes when the kingdoms that are of this world put so much pressure on us, and not just this country or that country, but all of the things of this world. The very, its various power and wisdom, its various glories and strengths. That pressure comes to bear on our lives in various ways, and we fear it more than we ought to. We love it more than we ought to. Lord, teach us to look up. Teach us to set our hopes and our, our, our sights on, uh, on Jesus Christ by faith. And as we do so, to throw aside every sin which clings so closely, and to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.